Judges chapter 8, if you'll join me there. Didn't quite get out of the 8th chapter and this section, and I hope, Lord willing, tonight to be able to finish up the 8th chapter, and chapter 9 is probably the lengthiest chapter in the book of Judges, but it's sort of one running continuous story, so I'd like to be able to kind of get through all of that together, Lord willing, tonight. And this is certainly a section in the scripture. Sometimes you read the Bible, and a lot of what we're reading and studying is teaching us what we should do. Well, this is certainly a section in Scripture where God is trying to say to us, these are the things that you should not do. Uh, and sometimes when we read the Word of God, it's not always necessarily giving us instruction, this is what you should do or how you ought to live. Sometimes God is giving to us examples. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that all things were written for our admonition as examples to us, the Old Testament particularly, that we might learn how to a lot of times avoid the same failure the same mistakes that we see happening in the lives of God's people in Israel. So certainly this is one of those chapters. Again, if you're kind of a note taker mentally, you want to kind of, okay, list here. These are things not to do. These are ways not to bring misery into my life, to disobey God, to hurt and harm other people, and so on and so forth, because a lot of what we see here are a lot of bad and negative examples of mistakes that were made during this time. In fact, there's some New Testament verses that sort of overlay and describe what we're seeing here, which is a lot of the works of the flesh and the sinful nature. You might want to just keep in the front of your mind as we're going through this together. Again, Galatians 5 gives to us a list of the works of the flesh or the works of the sinful nature. And a part of that we read, the works of the flesh, include things like idolatry, sorcery, and then pay attention to these things because we'll see them tonight. Hatred contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, we'll see that, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, we'll see that, drunkenness, we'll see that, revelries, and the like. James then says, as he's writing about the distinction between wisdom that comes from above, from God, and wisdom that's earthly or sensual or demonic, there are other types of wisdom as well, he says this in James 3, he says, who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by the good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom, and then he says this, but if you have bitter envy, we'll see that, and self-seeking, we'll see that, in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So the Bible says that there are types of wisdom that do not come from God, that are earthly in their mindset, that are sensual, that is they come from the sensual fleshly nature, the sinful capacities within us, and even wisdom that is just strictly demonic. It's just satanically inspired in its thinking, uh, in its attitude, in its mindset. And he says when those types of wisdom are at work in a person's life, he says there will be things like envy, and self-seeking, again, self-promotion, selfish ambitions. And he says when those things are present, they result in confusion and every type of evil thing starts to happen. And we'll see those things happening in our chapters that we're looking at here tonight together. Now, sort of just to bring us back up to speed where we're at in chapter 8, remember that the Midianites for seven years had been harassing the nation of Israel because they had turned away from God. God made them vulnerable. The Midianites 
took over and began to just harass and oppress Israel. They cried out. God raised up an unlikely deliverer, a man named Gideon, who didn't think that God could use him. But ultimately, God called him. He rallied together a group of troops. It tells us as the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And remember, at this point, God has just given to Gideon and to Israel a miraculous victory. In fact, a victory that was against all odds. We saw last time where 300 men by God's power and assistance, were able to defeat an enemy force of Midianites of 135,000 armed soldiers together with camels and other things that would assist them in ancient warfare. So again, ridiculous odds, 450 to 1. Uh, but yet God gave them victory because the Bible says that with God, Nothing will be impossible. So odds don't really matter to God. They stress us out, but all they really do for God is present a bigger stage for him to just manifest his glory and to demonstrate his power on a greater capacity. So this incredible victory has come about now for Gideon, his 300 men that God weaned down that army to. And Gideon is now at this point pursuing two of those Midianite kings, uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, and has just caught those kings and brought them under his control. If you look with me there in verse 18, let's pick it up from that point. He's now captured Zeba and Zalmunna, and he says to those men, that the two Midianite kings, what kind of men, he says, were they whom you killed at Tabor? Now, apparently Gideon here is referring to something that was done in time past. We don't have a biblical record of it. But during the time of that seven-year oppression when the Midianites and the kings of the different areas were ruling over and harassing the nation of Israel, it seems that probably at one point, maybe remember when they would come and they would ravage and ruin their crops, maybe there was some resistance uh, or something of that nature. And these two kings slaughtered and executed a group of men. And maybe Gideon's referring to a particular event where a number of Israelites were put to death there at Tabor, an incident that these two particular men, Z, and Zalmunna were a part of and so he says what kind of men were they and they answered as you are so were they each one resembled the son of a king so they were men like you they say men who seemed to be of noble character like they perceived that Gideon was the leader of God's army at this time and he said to them verse 19 they were my brothers the sons of my mother and as the Lord lives if you had let them live, I would not kill you. So Gideon now indicates to them that he is about to execute justice upon them. Again, God said in the Mosaic law that if someone took life, that was a capital crime. And if you took innocent life, you were to lose life. That was according to God's design and God's law, the way he instituted things to uh, kill someone, to murder someone. That was a capital offense. So he says, listen, I, I, because of what you've done now and honoring the way of the Lord, he says, I'm now going to carry out God's execution of justice upon you you're going to lose your lives because of this he informs them that they're about to be put to death and verse 20 it says that he then turned Gideon did to Jether his firstborn his eldest son and said rise kill them but the youth would not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a youth so Gideon turns to his eldest son and he what he's really trying to do here is confer honor upon his oldest son by allowing him to be the one to execute these two kings, these enemies 
who have been harassing them. And in so doing, that would confer honor upon him and make him be looked to as a leader and someone who would be respected among the people. So he's trying to offer this opportunity for him to step forward, to embrace his manhood, to take on this role of greater responsibility. So he turns to his son and he says, rise, execute these two men, carry out the judgment of God against them that is right in their lives. But it says that his youngest son, we don't know, or excuse me, his oldest son was still a youth. That could be that he was a young man, late teens, maybe early 20s. But it says that he was afraid. He was intimidated. He, He couldn't bring himself to carry out the death sentence to yield the sword and to take their lives from them because it says he was still a youth again he just the idea is he wasn't ready for this yet he just found himself just intimidated wasn't able to bring himself to do it so Ziba and Zalmunna they then said to to Gideon rise yourself and kill us for as a man is so is his strength. So they say to Gideon, listen, your son can't do it. You're the one that's the military leader anyway. You're the one that's the, uh, the, 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 the battle-hardened individual. Why don't you take our lives? Now, part of this could be that uh, they felt it would be more honorable to be put to death by the actual general or, or king representative of their enemy force that they had just fought against. So they wanted to die. These were battle-hardened individuals in ancient warfare. They wanted to die in the most honorable way and didn't want a young person person to put them to death it could have also been from a practical perspective that they were afraid that this young man didn't know what he did uh, too well might uh, prolong the process a little bit he might take a few hacks and prolong the death process where an older more experienced man would boom you know one time and off with your head and it's over quick so it could have been a little bit of both so that they they goad Gideon here and probably again they're almost maybe perhaps trying to Uh, maybe inflame him a little bit so that he would with one good thrust just take them out or lop off their head they say kill us yourself if you're a man so is a man's strength demonstrate your manhood by putting us to death so Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and then took the crescent ornaments again crescent ornaments would be in the shape of the of the moon the idea is that were on their camels next now interesting all the way back as far as the time of the Midianites, or also we would refer to as the Ishmaelites, they had, as a part of their worship practices, the worship of the moon god uh, and, and the crescent ornament in the shape of the moon, which is very interesting because today <clears throat> in Islam, one of their sort of representative symbols is the crescent or the moon as the part of the worship of Allah. But just just goes to show you that uh, the, the uh, idea of the symbolism of a moon as a part of a worship practice predates Islam. That's not something that Islam came up with. Uh, they just took the idea of something that already existed in ancient worship, which was really the worship of the moon god and the crescent ornament we see here was something that was a part of ancient ancient worship practices all the way as far back as this time verse 22 and then the men of israel after these events said to gideon rule over us both you and your son and your grandson also for you have delivered us from the hand of midian so out of gratitude enthusiasm this great victory has just taken place now he in a very 
courageous manner has just put to death these last two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. He's executed them on the spot. So they're motivated now with an interest to want a king. And they think, who better to have than Gideon after all he's done for us? So they say to him, rule over us. They're asking him to literally become their king. Already you see in the nation of Israel this interest that they would have an earthly king. Ultimately, this won't happen until the time uh, of the days of Samuel the prophet with Saul. And But again, remember, this was never God's intention because the heart of God was always that Israel would be a theocracy, that God would rule over them and that they would look to the Lord ultimately as their ruler. But like other nations around them, they wanted an earthly king and we see it already beginning to surface. So in their excitement over this, they say to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. Basically, what they're saying is, start a dynasty, Gideon. Uh, we, we want you to rule over us, and then after you, your son, and your grandson. And so they're not just asking for a king. They want Gideon's family to be the first dynasty in Israel. And they say to him, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Hold on a minute. Who delivered them from the hand of Midian? Gideon didn't deliver them from the hand of Midian. God delivered them from the hand of Midian. But already, what are they doing? They're attributing victory and, and, and the, the works of God to the likes of a man that God just used. And already, their eyes are off of the Lord, and their eyes are already turning to a person, to an instrument. And they're saying, you delivered. Oh, Gideon, you're our man. If you can't do it, nobody can. Gideon, please. You're such a great guy. And, and wow, look what you've done for us. And the reality is all Gideon was, was a simple instrument in the process. Gideon knew that from the beginning. And remember, God shrunk down the ranks, remember, of the whole army. It went from 32,000 all the way down to 300 men. And the whole purpose behind that is because God says, I know the nature of the people and they will claim the glory for themselves. They'll give fleshly glory rather than giving glory and appreciation to me. And here already they're saying to Gideon, oh, Gideon, you've delivered us. You're so great. You're such a man of God. God used you in such an incredible way and already they want to exalt the instrument and worship the instrument and idolize him rather than giving glory and appreciation to God. But Gideon said to them, verse 23, I will not rule over you. He declines their offer, nor shall my son rule over you. We're not setting up a dynasty. He, he very wisely says, there it is, the Lord shall rule over you. So in this sense, Gideon does a wise thing. He declines the opportunity for them to enthrone him, to make him somebody special. He doesn't want to rob the glory from God or take the credit. And he does a very smart thing. He deflects their attention back to the Lord. And he says, I shouldn't rule over you. The Lord is the one that should rule over you. And any wise leader recognizes that ultimately that is the best form of leadership anyway. He says the Lord should, and again, notice the terms, rule over you. They say rule over us. Any good leader, any godly leader, quite honestly, really desires above all else just to be a person of influence, not someone who controls people. And Gideon says, I don't want to control people. I want to influence people. Any good leader wants to be a servant leader, and they also want to be an influence to help direct people and provide guidance, but they don't have any interest in wanting to control people or rule over people or somehow have an ability to be in control of their lives. So Guinness, whoa, I don't want to rule over. If anybody needs to rule over people, God's the one that should be ruling over people. 
God should be controlling people. And this is just good wisdom. And ultimately, we need to remember this even among the body of Christ in the church, that Jesus is the head of the church. Paul, on one occasion, said, listen, we don't have dominion over your faith. We're just helpers of your joy. And Paul wanted to convey this idea clearly as an apostle, as a, as a pastor, as a church planner. Paul said, listen, I, I, don't, I don't have dominion or control over you. I, I, don't, I don't want to have dominion or control over you. You need to submit to the Lord and, and, and not be uh, overly thinking that somehow I have the ultimate say or control in your life or can somehow rule over you. And Paul said, no, look, we are just those, we're like coaches spiritually that God just brought alongside to help point the way and provide examples and direction and to encourage you but ultimately to say hey look to the Lord turn to the Lord let him lead you let him rule over you and here Gideon does this very wisely now the hard part is as Gideon is saying these things in some senses he declines the opportunity to become a king but then in the very next few uh, events here he still acts like a king and unfortunately Gideon starts really well but he doesn't finish real well. And this is where this is a great lesson because a good start doesn't always guarantee a good finish. And we always have to remember this. Sadly, sadly, whether it is in the you know, world of sports or whether it is in the world of business or whether it is in the world of the things of God, a good start does not guarantee a great finish. And quite honestly, it's not that impressive how well somebody begins or starts. What is impressive is do they finish well? Do they cross the finish line? Do they remain consistent and faithful? Or does the victory, the success, the usefulness, all those things begin to get into their heart and their system and their head and they become an absolute monster and they backslide and they turn away from all the things that were right early on in their lives? Gideon began as a humble man, someone who didn't even think God could use him. And by the end here, uh, I mean, he literally just becomes a very carnal a somewhat almost apostate individual in some of the things that he does and he, and he on top of that precipitates things that then translate into a next generation that become even more horrendous because of his bad decisions and again perhaps it was because uh, the inability to be able to control some form of success or fruitfulness and you know if a person doesn't have character first then they're not usually able to handle success very well uh, they may experience some success, but it can become something that leads to a tremendous amount of destruction and unsuccessful living in their personal actions and ways afterwards. And this is sadly what Gideon does. He turns down the offer to be a king, but watch what happens. Verse 24, Gideon said to them, I would, however, I don't want to be your king, but I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, of course, gratefully, sure, we, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, each man threw the earrings in from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments, pendants and purple robes, which are of the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's neck. So uh, the amount, the weight that's given there in verse 26, 
Uh, that's around probably somewhere between 50 to 70 pounds of gold. Now, I don't know what it was in that day, but you have an idea today of how much gold goes per ounce. That's quite a substantial amount of money and wealth that he was acquiring there in gold. So he accumulates quite a pretty hefty, uh, what do you want to call it, a bonus check or whatever. As he says, listen, I, no, I, I, don't want, I don't want to be your king and, and I don't want to rule over you, but I wouldn't mind a little bit of recognition. And I wouldn't mind a little bit of pay and I wouldn't mind a little bit of compensation. Now, all of a sudden, he collects all this gold and all this wealth. And see, again, th this is the beginning of a downfall. Well, I, I don't need to be in charge, but I want to be recognized for what I did. And he wants recognition. This is the reason why he wants, he wants recognition that somehow maybe he is the one that's the reason why. Because he's asking for compensation for what he did in an unhealthy way. And he accumulates quite a bit of wealth. And again, this, this is a thing. A person can always sort of downplay, say the right things. But the reality is, but are they, but are they loving the recognition? And are they seeking the recognition? Everybody can say all the right stuff. Oh, I'm nobody special. Praise the Lord. It's all God to God be the glory. But yet the way they behave themselves is an indication they're loving all the attention and the recognition. And Gideon says here, I don't mind a little bit of gold, though, if you want to give me some gold. And he accumulates all this gold and wealth. And again, this excess wealth also becomes the next problem. It says Gideon, verse 27, made it into an ephod. And he set it up in a city. Now, remember, the ephod was sort of that vest-like uh, garment that the priests would wear and usually it was connected to discerning the will of God uh, so why exactly he makes this golden ephod and sets it up in a city we, we don't really know we can only speculate was it a way of acknowledging God did this and this was at God's direction and that's what this is symbolic of is it so that it would always be there in a city again as he sets up this golden ephod in such a way that people would always remember, hey, that's the golden ephod of Gideon. And, and again, it's more of a thing of uh, giving attention to the fact of the recognition factor that he did. And because of the great thing he did, there's sort of this monument to it. We can only speculate why he did it. The fact that he did it, however, it didn't work out real well. He sets it up in his own home city in Ophrah and it says, look what happens. All Israel played the harlot, that is spiritual adultery. They began to use this as an idol with it there. And notice it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. So for whatever reason he did it, it was still a bad idea. And it led to problems and the excess wealth and the excess gold and the excess attention. It became a snare in Gideon's life. It led to his downfall and it led to stumbling a whole bunch of people getting off track spiritually in their lives. And thus, Gideon, verse 28, was subdued before the children of Israel. So they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So a time of relative peace. And then Jeroboam, remember that's just another name for Gideon, son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Look at his next step downward. And Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. So then he begins to engage in polygamy, or what we ultimately might call, honestly, what we would refer to as a harem. Many wives. I don't know how many wives, but to have 70 sons, it's quite a few wives, I'm sure. Many wives. And he begins to engage in the practice of polygamy here. Now understand, having many wives, having what we would call a harem, 
really was something in that culture, ancient in that ancient culture, that indicated two things. First of all, it was a clear indication that a man had an inability to control his sexual lusts. That's why he had many wives, because he wasn't content just having one wife, and he could not bridle his sexual desires, so he therefore wanted many wives. It also was a way somewhat to arrogantly indicate to people your power and your great wealth, because guess what? If you had that many wives and that many kids, that was a lot of people to support. Many wives and 70 kids, you better be a pretty powerful and wealthy individual to support that kind of a family. So it was a way of indicating, yeah, I can support all these wives and 70 sons. I'm a power man. I have lots of wealth. And it was a way of just sort of somewhat in an arrogant way demonstrating how great you were. This was why people would have harems in that day. Now, if that were not enough, verse 31, we also read, and his concubine who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name was called Abimelech. And he will be the character that causes all the problems in the next chapter. So on top of many wives, Gideon also had, verse 31 says, a concubine over in the town of Shechem who bore him a son. Now a concubine, point blank, was basically someone who was, in essence, that you visited periodically just for sexual gratification. They didn't have the rights of a wife. You didn't take care of a concubine. They didn't live with you. A concubine a lot of time lived in a separate town or in their own area and were outside of the household of the individual. And it was basically someone that an individual visited for sexual pleasure. So on top of everything else, Gideon has himself a concubine in Shechem. Through this relationship, he conceives another son whose name is Abimelech. And again, it is this carnal fleshly indulgence with the concubine that he has that yields something of the flesh that causes major consequences and a lot more hurt and harm. So again, the inability to bridle or control his sexual lust caused a lot of havoc and heartache for a bunch of other people beyond just himself and his own household. Verse 32 says, Gideon, the son of Joash, then died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah the Abizrites. And so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again, there's the pattern, we've seen it many times, played the harlot with Baals and made Baal Berith their gods. So they changed gods back to uh, the Baals instead of Jehovah God and the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God the idea is they, they chose to forget him they set him aside to pursue the God that they wanted instead was an amnesia they didn't forget him and notice we're reminded the very God himself who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies isn't it amazing how quick people for their selfish pleasures and their sensual desires are so willing to just set God aside after all that God does for them? God delivered them from their enemies? I mean, think of the miraculous things God just did for them after seven years of misery and how quick, sadly, our human nature, how quick we are sometimes to just set God aside because of some other driving passion or interest and they go chasing after they make Baabarith their new God now. Nor do they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam or Gideon in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. Chapter 9, verse 1, And then Abimelech, remember the son of the concubine, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers, and he spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother 
fathers, saying, Please, speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam reign over you, or that one reign over you? wonder who that would be. Remember, he says, when you're considering what one might be best, remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of the men of Shechem, and the heart of the people was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, well, he is our brother. So basically, Abimelech here uh, recognizes Gideon has now died, and this is an opportunity here. I might as well capitalize on the momentum of this situation for my own selfish interests here. So he decides with the selfish ambition that's operating in his heart very clearly here, hey, this is an occasion where I can thrust myself forward and capitalize on this situation and get a position and get some authority and get some control and some attention and the ability to, to be in charge and have some leadership. So he starts campaigning for himself. And it says that he recognizes, well, one of the 70 sons might somehow potentially get a position to take over. But he says, you know, they're all Jews. And boy, I, if I go to my own people, I can say, look, well, my, well yeah, my father was, was Jewish, but my mother's a Canaanite. And look, he goes to his own townspeople and he says, look, would it be better to have one of those full-bred Jews rule over you? Or maybe just one person, and he says, and if you're going to have one person, why not have one person that, that's actually one of your own flesh and blood? From the community here, someone that you know. And he uses this as an opportunity to sort of promote himself, self-promotion, pushing himself forward. One person reigning over you. Remember, I'm actually the ideal person that fits that uh, candidate that you'd probably be looking for. And it says, as he says this, the people's hearts are sort of duped and they're inclined now to want to follow Abimelech and to potentially make him their king. So he's beginning to persuade the people. This is good strategic primary campaigning here. You, you go to the place that you're going to have good favor with to begin to get some momentum going. Verse 4, so they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Barith. So again, they're using now pagan money not God's money, and you can always tell here they're using pagan money to give him a little bit of campaign funds to, to get him going forward, which Abimelech, look what he does with his money, he hired some worthless and reckless men. Now that's a good campaign team, isn't it? Hire some worthless and reckless men and they followed him. So he said, I gotta put some guys to work here and you know, find me some worthless men. And some reckless ones too. I'm, I'm going to use some of this money and hire them and get their assistance to get me into a position of leadership. And they went to his father's house at Ophrah. Look at this now. And they killed his brothers. Mass execution. The 70 sons of Jeroboam. Public execution. Kills ruthlessly all you know, uh, of the sons, his stepbrothers if you would, on one stone, however, one of the 70 escaped. Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left because he went and hid himself. So you want to talk about cruelty. You want to talk about complete selfish ambition and drive to do whatever he's got to do to get what he wants. He literally is willing to publicly execute innocent individuals, his own family members, 
People who he had close relationships with, literally, he and these worthless men put to death 69 of his own family members there on the same stone, just executing them in cold blood, ruthless cruelty, because this is where his heart is at at this time and his fleshly ambition. And all the men of Shechem, it says, gathered together all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. So again, not king over the whole territory, but they kind of sort of give him a position now, make him a king recognized in that particular area of Shechem and the surrounding vicinity. But uh, they're beginning now to put him into this position of rulership. But when they had told Jotham, the one of the 70 that had escaped, he went and stood up on the top of Mount Gerizim and he lifted up his voice and he cried out. And he gives a message now to warn them of what they're about to do. And he said to the people, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So he says, listen, pay attention. I'm going to warn you what you're about to do with this individual and choosing to follow him and taking him as your leader. And, and he now gives to them really what is what we have in the first parable in the Bible. Uh, we often think of parables of something that Jesus used as a form of teaching, and it was a parable, parabolo, it's a compound word. It literally speaks of taking an earthly story and laying it alongside a spiritual truth. That's the idea of a parable. You take a natural story, an earthly story, and you lay that down next to a spiritual truth so that people can pick up and connect the dots and understand the spiritual truth better. So he lays out this parable, sort of a prophetic warning, and he says to them, verse 8, the trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go sway over trees? So the olive tree is asked, hey, we, we want a king. Would you rule over us? And he says, listen, I, I'm busy. I, God's given me something to do. I'm content in what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling my purpose. I'm not interested in reigning over you and swaying over you. The trees then said to the fig tree, they go to someone else of noble character, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit to go sway over trees? And then the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men and goes sway over trees? So the idea here is these uh, different trees, the olive tree, the, uh, the fig tree, the, the vine, they all represent noble personages that are occupied in good, productive causes. They're content with what they're doing. Look, I, I'm doing what God's asked me to do. I don't need to come be in charge of you. I don't, I'm, I'm content doing what I'm doing. They're not, the picture here is they're not driven by selfish ambition. They're not longing for opportunity. They're not ambitious for power or hungry to rule over people or be in control or throw their weight around. So they're declining the opportunity. Look, it really doesn't interest us. We're, we're, we're not chomping at the bit to come and rule over you and kind of picturing what Gideon did when he declined the offer but then the contrast of what Abimelech was, verse 14, he was the bramble king. Then all the trees said to the bramble. Now remember, a bramble is like a, a thorn bush. It's like what you'd call tumbleweed, you know, just uh, kind of rolling around. It, it has no real ability to do anything constructive. You can't build with a, with a piece of bramble, uh, briar wood or, or tumbleweed. It's really only good for one thing, kindling for a fire. 
And a lot of times that would be the cause of maybe a forest fire. It would be one of these bramble bushes would catch fire and it would spread and cause a bad forest fire to happen. So they say to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble, picture of Abimelech here, he said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. Now, interesting. What? A bramble don't give no shade. Last time I looked at a piece of tumbleweed, a tumbleweed isn't going to give shade to a bunch of trees. So again, what is this? This is like typical politics. Basically promises that he can't fulfill anyway. But he's trying to sound good. Hey, let me rule over you and I'll give you lots of shade. You can take shade and I'll, and I'll provide lots of shade. And the reality is, no, you're making false promises that you can't keep even if you do rule over us. But this is what arrogant people do. You know, they want power. They want control. They'll promise anything just to get a position. He says, come, take shelter. Again, thinking so highly of himself. Notice as well, but if not, if you refuse me, if you don't submit to my authority, then let fire come out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Again, the, the idea there is, is threats of devastation that the bramble not only thinks more highly of himself than he should, but he also is someone who basically says, and if you don't cooperate with me, and if you don't let me be in charge of you, then he says, there ain't nothing going to come for you but a fire of devastation that's going to destroy and wipe you. I will eradicate you and I'll send forth fire that will destroy all the biggest cedars of Lebanon. So again, the idea is harsh and cruel treatment to anyone who disagrees with them or resists them. And this is a picture of the nature of Abimelech and the prophetic warning of what was going to happen if they embraced him. Verse 16, Now therefore, he says to them, explaining what he's talking about, If you've acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father, he says, fought for you, and he risked his life, and he delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day, and killed 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you've acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbabel and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. Celebrate what you've done if it's true and sincere and let him also rejoice in you. His warning, but if not, if what you've done is wrong, he says, then be warned. Let fire come from Abimelech, just like the parable, and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So he warns them, this path you're headed on is not good, he says. Be aware, this man does not have good intentions, his heart's not in the right place, and if you stick with him, you're not only going to get hurt, you're going to get destroyed. You're going to get ruined. Because he's only interested ultimately in what he wants for himself long term. The idea is here. So this caution and this prophetic warning of the fire of judgment and pain that would come forth from Abimelech's rulership over them. And Jotham then ran away and fled, verse 21, and dwelt in Beir for fear of Abimelech his brother. And look what happens now, verse 22. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel for three years. Now we might look at it and say, what? Three years? I mean, clearly this guy is not the right. Why would God not eradicate him in three hours? God could have done that, right? God, three years? What would you let him be in control for three years? What would you give a guy like that three? 
Listen, I don't always understand the, the ways of the Lord, and sometimes God's wheels grind slowly. But we always need to remember God's wheels also grind very thoroughly. And God ultimately will accomplish His purposes. God will ultimately deal with what He needs to deal with, and sometimes it's because in the process, He's dealing with more than just the individual. God wasn't just upset with Abimelech. He was also upset with all the men of Shechem who helped participate in all of His shenanigans. And those who were somewhat being supportive of what he was doing rather than standing against it. So God has multiple things that he's dealing with and really multiple individuals that he is upset with in this process, even beyond Abimelech. So perhaps this was part of the, the duration. For, for three years he reigned. But then, verse 23, when the time of God came about, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem then dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So very quickly, notice, when something is of the flesh, they turned on him just as quick as they promoted him. And they now have this ill will and this relationship, again, falls apart, one relationship after the other. This is how it works when things are of the flesh. And he sent an ill will among them. They dealt treacherous with Abimelech that the crime, here's the reason why, so the crime that was done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains. And they robbed all who passed by along the way, and it was told Abimelech. So basically his supporters go out and they become rebels and bandits, and they're robbing all the people coming through the territory that would be giving their tribute to Abimelech, and, and they say, forget Abimelech, let's get what we can get for ourselves. And this is now going to cause tension between the people of Shechem and Abimelech, who they just promoted as their king. Verse 26, Now a man named Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So we need somebody else to be in charge, perhaps. So he begins dialogue with them. And they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from the vineyards and trod them and made merry. The idea is they got pickled drunk. Uh, as they made themselves something to party with. They went into the house of their God. They ate and they drank. They got plastered. And when they got plastered, they started to curse Abimelech. That Abimelech. So Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? Is he not, is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority. Boy, isn't it amazing how uh, you know, this kind of stuff, it, it just breeds more people of the same like and manner. You know, one person who's got selfish ambition that's just an opportunist and a rotten leader, they just breed more people like that who just go off and, and they, they take this spin-off and they want to do their next thing. Oh, if only everybody came under my author, that's the problem. We don't need this guy. You need to follow me instead. And kind of, again, this, this effort to try and draw people to oneself and selfish ambition. He's now trying to get people under his authority. He says, then I, I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech in his drunken stupor, increase your army and come out. So, he, again, he's, this is drunken bravado here. 
if I were in charge, and then he begins to say, and where's Abimelech? Tell him to come out with his army. I'll show him a thing or two. And again, the same idea here. You know, he's, he's you know, that, that drunken arrogance here. I'll, I'll take out him and his whole army. Tell him to come out and fight. Well, Zebel, one of Abimelech's officers, was there. And he overheard the drunken conversation as he was taunting Abimelech. He heard the words of Gaal, and his anger was aroused. How dare you talk about my boss like that? So he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Take note, Gaal the son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem and here they are fortifying the city against you. They're planning a coup, a rebellion. Now therefore get up this very night, you and the people with you. Lie and wait in the field and it shall be as soon as the sun is rising in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city when he and the people who are with him come out against you you may do to them as you find opportunity so he sends word to Abimelech listen Gaal's got a plan up his sleeve he's cursing you he's mocking you he's trying to rally people behind him and he's going to try and overthrow you you need to get up tonight don't even sleep tonight get ready and you need to plan an ambush and catch these guys off guard and get ahead of them before they're able to find opportunity to come against you. So Abimelech, verse 34, again, like a typical unhealthy leader, they're very insecure. If anything threatens their authority, they're going to make sure they put an end to it very quickly and carnally. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem and four companies. And when Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood at the entrance of the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait and when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, who apparently was still with him, he was kind of playing a double agent, he said, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, wanting to keep him deceived and in a place where he could be destroyed, no, no, he says, you're just seeing shadows of the mountains as if they're men. You're, you're, you're paranoid. You're not seeing things. You're, just, you're paranoid. Those are just shadows. So Gaal spoke again and said, See, no, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. And then Zebul said to him in confrontation, Okay, buddy, where indeed is your big mouth now? <laughs> you said you could destroy a bimbo. He says, All right, you, you ran your mouth when you were drunk saying, Come out and fight us. He says, Where indeed is your mouth now by which you said, Who is Abimelech? that we should serve him. Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So he says, okay, tough guy. Now that you're not drunk anymore, I told him what you said, and he's ready to fight you, and let's see if you're going to put up or shut up now. He says, go ahead out if you're such a big shot, and go overthrow Abimelech and take control with all your troops. So Gaal went out leading the men of Shechem, and he fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded. Notice, not just a few. Many people always get hurt when people lead in arrogant and unhealthy ways. Many people fell wounded at the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech dwelt at Aruma. And Zebal drove out Gaal and his brother so that they would not dwell in Shechem. So the plan failed. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. Now, here's what happens. The next day, the people think, okay, it's done with. The, that was overthrown. You know, it didn't work out. And, and they're just now heading out the next morning to go work in their fields. They think, okay, it's all settled. It's dealt with. Gaal was put down. But uh, again, uh, Abimelech is not content with that. 
Again, when anybody, when somebody is very insecure, they are going to wound people to the max. And they have no regard for anybody. So these people are just going out to their fields the next day. They think everything is peaceful. But verse 43 says, He took his people and divided them in three companies and lay in wait. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them, and he attacked them, peaceful citizens. And Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward, stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed all of them. So he just murders more people. Again, carnage and hurt people and bloodshed and lives being destroyed. So Abimelech fought against the city all day and he took the city and he killed the people who were in it. Talk about a little overreaction. And he demolished the city and he sowed it with salt. That would ruin the land so it could never be fertile for crops again, the salt. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that they had entered the stronghold of the temple of God Berith, and it was told Abimelech that the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So they go in this tower and they go up in it to try and hide, thinking they'll be safe hiding up in this tower, all these people. Abimelech gets word of it, that they were gathered together. Verse 48, he went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people with him, and he took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people with him, what you've seen me do Make haste and do as I have done. You get a branch and follow me. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. So they're all hiding up in a tower. He starts a fire at the bottom of it and basically just starts like a big kiln just baking a thousand people alive. Just letting the flames and the smuggling. You want to talk about just somebody's perspective. Just being off the wall. Why? Because it's all about him. And when it's sometimes when people get like where it's all about them, they have no regard for anybody anymore. People are just, they're expendable. We'll just go get another thousand people. And just a thousand men and women just kills all these people. And just destroys their lives. Well, look what happens. Verse 50 says, Then Abimelech went to Thebes. That's about 10 miles away. And he encamped against Thebes and took it. Now, whether something happened here or not, we're not sure. But he thinks, hey, this worked last time, so I can get away with it again. There was a strong tower in that city. And the men and the women and the people of the city fled and shut themselves in. And they went up to the top of the tower. A very similar thing. He thinks, oh, this worked last time. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. He's about ready to do the same thing. I love verse 53. But a certain woman, Mrs. Johnson, we don't know who she is, a certain woman dropped an upper millstone, probably weighed about 18 to 20 pounds, on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. See, when God's time and God's way comes, that's all it took. God didn't need an army. He didn't need a, a one woman. Just has her up and milk. She says, you know, I, I, I'm, you're not going to kill my babies. I am sick and tired of being pushed around. I heard what happened to people in the last tower. And she says, and, and she was maybe in the middle of grinding her meal with her upper millstone when she ran up into that tower. And she said, that's it. I, I, is that a bit like? She throws her thing out and comes right down and boom, hits him right on the head, crushes his skull. 
Again, was she a great aim? I don't know. Maybe it was just, quite frankly, the providence of God. And when God is ready to deal with someone, God will deal with someone. And that's all it took. One woman, this big, hotshot, Mr. Macho, you know, one woman, obscure, we don't even know her identity, one mill comes down, crushes his skull, he realizes it's a mortal wound, so he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. Oh, you would be embarrassed. A woman killed me. A woman killed me. Just kill me. So his young armor bearer, Probably thinking, I've been waiting a long time to do this. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes that's you know, it kind of gets like that. Glad to comply, sir. He thrusted through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. So everybody finally left and departed from this following. And thus, notice, thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers and all the evil of the men of Shechem. God returned on their own heads and on them came the curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam. Again, the lesson here, very clear, when you look at ultimately what happens with uh, you know, uh, Abimelech, certainly it's Galatians 6, where the scripture tells us, do not be deceived. God is is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Again, the idea is you can't mock God. You may push people around. You may mock people. You may manipulate people. You may get away with it for three years, 30 years. But the reality, God is always ultimately going to bring about what is just. God is going to deal with evil. God is going to judge. God is going to discipline. And you can't mock God and think you're going to get away with it. It will not work. The Bible tells us that the nature of God is that what a man sows, he will reap. And God will always deal with wrongdoing. He will always deal with it. He will always judge in time. And it's a good reminder as well that when we do not heed the warnings of God, we are setting ourselves up for a major, major heartache and disappointment down the road. Because God tried to warn them early on, remember, through who? Jotham, who was saying, listen, this guy's not good news. Don't follow this guy. Don't go through with this. And had the people heeded the early warning, a lot of that pain and problems never would have happened. So again, it's just a good reminder for us as well, all of us. When God's warning us about something, Listen to the warning. Take the warning. Whatever that may be in your life. Maybe God's been warning you. and caught, like, Be careful. That's not a good path you're on. Don't go down that road. Don't do that. And if God is warning you about something, heed God's warning. Avoid the pain. Avoid the heartache of disregarding what God is saying when he's warning you about something. Let's stand. Let's pray.